Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. Uh, my name is Bo Zafsam, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So uh, today we have uh, Neil Dutta from Renmac, who is the Head of Economics and a partner of Renmac. And uh, I literally just asked him a few moments ago when he joined, and it's actually 12 years ago, July 2012. Um, so uh, Neil, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. Thank you, Mo. It's good to be here. I've obviously... Um, uh, watch you. In fact, we've been clients of Red Mac for those twelve years ever since it first started, and watched you, um, uh, you know, watch your career path at Red Mac and, and economics coverage over the years. And uh, I have to say, certainly over the last four or five years, um, you know, uh, and it's, it's probably fair to say many other commentators have also suggested that you've been highly accurate, particularly over the COVID period and post-COVID period when it has been very difficult. Uh, I was going to say, uh, what do you attribute that success to? Oh, gosh. Well, thank you for that intro. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think, um, well, I guess, I guess part of it is that, you know, after the financial crisis, right? I mean, if um, if you couldn't figure out, I think, in, by 2012 that things can potentially work out, I just think you'd never gonna, you're never going to get it, right? I mean, so I think that's sort of the first, you know, just setting the table. So if you go back to COVID, um, I think what we saw that maybe a lot of other people didn't see at the time was just the response, um, frankly, uh, with how people uh, behaved uh, upon the initial reopening of the economy. What were people going out and doing? They were looking for houses, right? That's what they were doing. I mean, the housing market basically had a V-shaped recovery off the COVID lows, okay? And what do we know about housing? Well, it's basically an irreversible decision. I mean, once you sign a contract and put a down payment on a house, it's very difficult to undo that transaction, right? So you have to be somewhat sure about your situation to make a purchasing decision like that. Uh, so this is what economists call irreversible decision. And so if people are feeling confident enough to do that, I thought it was a very, I went a long way to kind of explaining my optimism off the COVID lows. I mean, and then of course we know the rest of it, right? Aggressive policy response and, you know, the fiscal, um, you know, help and relief that that uh, the government did. I mean, we were sort of fighting the last war, right? I mean, the uh, 2010s period was all about austerity, not doing enough, uh, sort of tolerating a much uh, slower uh, economic uh, rebound. And you know, in some respects, policymakers overlearned those lessons, um, and they just put, you know, both their feet, both their hands on the accelerator, and um, and uh, we got a V-shaped recovery effectively. Um, so I think that was that was for me. It was really the housing market that kind of um, was the tell um, on uh, on why um, you know I was sort of a little bit more um, early on the uh, on the recovery. So obviously we we now I guess you know through the rate cycle uh, rates are up we're you know we're definitely at a peak I think most uh, central banks now feel that the uh, the need to to cut interest rates. What do you think are the sort of the key debates in terms of timing? You know, clearly we just had a slightly stronger than expected CPI print, but the overall trend remains relatively low. What are your thoughts on on um, on the sort of key indicators that they'll be making now to to finally uh, move the rates uh, rates lower. 
Well, I think, I mean, to me, the big story is still the same, right? Is that we're at the end of the day, Mose, we're talking about when the Fed is cutting and how much is the economy growing? I mean, that's a pretty interesting conversation to be having. Um, you know, I, I uh, made a boo-boo. Uh, I mean, I thought that they were going to go in March. I don't think they'll do that anymore. Um, you know, the data was looking pretty good for that uh, up until recently. I mean, Powell basically, uh, you know, took to his microphone and uh, and shot the idea down, essentially. But, um, you know, generally speaking, I think the overarching uh, story remains the same. Was, was January a setback with respect to inflation? Sure. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, what's the overall trend in the inflation data? We know that rental inflation is likely to moderate. We know, importantly, you know, whenever you get a data point like the one you did in January on inflation, it's just important to kind of take a step back and like go back and think about first principles, right? So what do we know? We know that the labor market is not as much of an inflationary impulse as it was a year ago, right? So if you look at things like the employment cost index, that's running at about three and a half percent at an annual rate. And given the trend growth in productivity of around one and a half percent, that is more or less consistent with the Fed's inflation objective, right? Because compensation growth will tend to equal inflation and productivity. You look at household inflation expectations, obviously the realized inflation data were a little bit softer in January, but if you look at inflation expectations, they're coming down for not only households, but also businesses, right? Businesses have a much stronger financial incentive to get the inflation call right. And they're telling you that they basically expect 2% uh, cost growth over the next year. Um, so I think that's important. And then when you look at just broad commodities, um, you know, this is something that my colleague Jeff uh, DeGraff mentioned, but, you know, commodity prices have been coming down and with a lag that will bleed somewhat into consumer prices, right? I mean, it is true that there's more labor that goes into a box of cornflakes than corn, but there's still corn that goes into cornflakes, right? And so pass-through is not substantial, but there is some. So some of that weakness in commodity prices will bleed in to things like food at home uh, prices, so grocery store bills as an example. So I think the overall story is still the same. So to me, it's just a reminder that when you have sort of um, sharp market reactions to economic data points, it's usually, a, you know, that tells you probably more about how invested people were in the soft landing view. And, you know, does it really change that much for the Fed? I don't think so. So, you know, I mean, if I'm thinking about it, to me, it's just an opportunity really to go along the front end of the curve again. Um, because I do think ultimately the Fed will be cutting a few times, not a lot, uh, but they should be recalibrating policy as inflation moderates. Yeah. So in terms of your um, your time horizon now, are you looking sort of May, June? Um, are you in the kind of, I guess it's always difficult to predict these things. Uh, we've been, by the way, in, in the May camp, we just thought March was probably a little bit too soon in fact, you probably need one Fed meeting to kind of lay the frame, uh, lay the groundwork before before you do it. But there's big gaps between now, the last Fed meeting, and, and in May, right? So, um, um, uh, so March and May is quite a big gap. Yeah, we'll get several inflation reports between now and the May meeting. So, you know, I had thought March. I mean, a lot of that enthusiasm from my end on March was really just a function of. Core inflation has been below 2% as measured by the core PC deflator for the last six, seven months. And so, yeah. 
you know, how much more evidence do you really need to justify, um, you know, adjusting policy rates? I didn't really think much more. Um, but, uh, you know, between now and May, you'll get several more inflation prints. Um, you'll get another employment cost index report, right? So I think by then we should have enough. And I think the most important thing really is is, uh, is compensation growth, because that was the principal reason why the central bank has been hawkish for all this time. I mean, you can't use, you can't point to the labor market anymore as a rationale to stay hawkish, because that's basically consistent with 2% inflation. So, um, you know, I think the data in my mind is really going to pile up. There, there were some probably some weird things that went on with that inflation number in January. People talk about residual seasonality. You had a huge disconnect between the uh, OER and the rent of primary residence. I mean, it's unusual. It doesn't really, I don't think either of those things are going to last. Uh, so it just suggests to me at least that, you know, come March, April, CPI data, those will be probably somewhat weaker than what we saw in January. And that'll, you know, lay the foundation for uh, for a cut in May. So then I guess the, the natural question is, um, uh, and it's a question I've been asking most people uh, over the course of the last sort of six months or so, is where do you think the trough rate's going to be? Um, because in some respect, that's actually today, that's actually the more important question to be asking um, in terms of uh, selling interest rates uh, where the bond market lands um, and where the tenure you should, should be in, uh, on a fair value basis. A any thoughts? I mean, just kind of sort of put it out there. Um, you know, uh, some of the larger bulge bracket banks have have, you know, end of 2025 at 2.5 or 2.75 as their trough rate. Um, you know, are you sort of, I mean, by and we're at, we're at sort of, and we've been on the tape of saying that, you know, we felt the trough rates would be more like 3.25 in this, in this sort of cycle, um, um, and given all the sort of, you know, trends we're seeing in terms of, you know, reshoring and, and so on and so forth that, that they're out there. I find it, I mean, I find it somewhat implausible that the trough rate could be below 3%, frankly. Um, I mean, could you imagine what would happen in the housing market in the US if the Fed took the funds rate down to that, down to 3%? I mean, think about, I mean, just, just this morning, I mean, as an example, we got, um, the NA, the housing market index, sort of a survey of home builder sentiment, and it actually rose. And builders are increasingly optimistic about their future sales and their current sales. And February, by this is a February data point, by the way. And what do we know about February? This was a month in which mortgage rates have generally been going up. So I think if mortgage rates went down, it would be, uh, you know, I mean, as if the Fed started cutting that low, I mean, you'd probably light a fire under the, uh, under the housing market that would that would reignite inflation. I mean, so I think, you know, neutral interest rates is one of these abstract concepts that means a lot in monetary policy, but it's it's impossible to know without the benefit of hindsight. I mean, you it's sort of something that you have to feel out. Um I I so I don't know what neutral is and I don't assume to know, but um m my guess is that it's probably above 3%. It's certainly higher than where the Fed has it, which is 2.5%. And um I think the way uh, the Fed should sort of do this is just take a kind of a piecemeal approach, right? I mean, so inflation is slowing. I think that's probably good for about 100 basis points worth of rate cuts this year. Um, you know, three, four times, I think, is a reasonable baseline for, for 2024. 
Um, and if they start in May, that probably gets you through September, right? So May, June, July, and then they, they cut in September. And then they reassess. And, you know, we'll see how things are shaking out. I, I could see it going both ways. I could see inflation continuing to sit at 2%, in which case that'll allow the Fed to sort of continue recalibrating policy. Maybe they start cutting every quarter as opposed to every meeting. Um, or, you, I mean, you could see... Um, you know, things like goods inflation start to perk back up. You could see a lot of the disinflation in housing have run its course. Maybe that starts to perk up at the end of the year. I mean, so I think we'll see. Um, you know, so I, I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit reluctant to kind of say, you know, I mean, all these big, big firms, they have to make a forecast, right? They have to say, like, here's my long-run forecast. I think they're going to cut every quarter for, for the next year and a half or so. But... I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think we could maybe we just talk about a funds rate just sitting at four and a quarter. I mean, it's you know, it's hard. It's hard to know. Um, so uh, you know, that that's sort of where I'm at. I feel pretty good about the next six months. I think the Fed's likely going to be cutting interest rates as inflation is slowing. Um, but I feel less confident about how much and how much more inflation is going to be slowing by the end of the year. Um, so uh, so that that's sort of where I'm at. So I'm a little bit reluctant to kind of. Um, say that we're just on this glide path towards neutral. I think the optics of the Fed taking rates down, even as inflation is stabilizing, if not perking back up at some point in 2025, um, those optics are problematic. So, no, but I think we're with you on that, uh, you know, on that front uh, in terms of, you know, so somewhere, somewhere above three, um, and then we'll kind of have a look at where it is. I mean, we've, we've kind of said you know, 325 to 350 as a, as a number, and I guess we need to put a straw man out there because, in essence, that's where we're valuing our five-year or ten-year bonds at, right? So, so right. we're kind of saying, look, if, if if that's where it's getting at, and we're we're looking at sort of, um, you know, real yields roughly around um, you know, hundred, and and we know that debt levels are also pretty high, so this risk premium should be a bit higher as well. So I think that's kind of why. Thinking about that base level is, you know, becomes quite important from a from a, you know, long term interest rate perspective. Um, so moving on to one question, which is certainly on our minds at the moment, is how much, and we saw it from some of the import price data today, but how much weak, how much is weakness in the rest of the world? You know, European, well, UK recession, European recession, um, China. In, in deflation, um, how much of that um, is, you know, how much of that is going to impact the U.S. kind of inflationary numbers, U.S. economy? Because it reminds me, and I, you know, maybe showing you know, age a bit here, but it reminds me of the sort of mid nineties where, where um, you know, the reason why the Fed was able to cut interest rates at that time was because there was crisis in Asia and everywhere else. Um, any thoughts on sort of? Import, imported deflation into the U.S. economy? I mean, we'll import a little bit of deflation, but most models suggest a very limited exchange rate pass-through into U.S. core inflation. Uh, most of what's driving U.S. inflation is domestically orientated services, which is basically a function of the labor markets. Uh, so I think that matters a lot more. Um, you know, I mean, as an example, I mean, if you look at the 2000s, we were import. I mean, you had the ascendance of China, um, and you know the broadening out of the global supply chains. You know, core goods inflation in the U.S. was basically deflating the entire time, um, and yet core PCE uh, uh, 
was basically running slightly over 2% during that period. I mean, if anything, you can make a argument that maybe the Fed let inflation run a little bit too firm during that time. Um, but uh, but any at any rate, I mean, so I don't I don't think it. I mean, I think it, it matters clearly, but it's not um, it's not a big driver of of, uh, of U.S. inflation dynamics. You know, the most most of the the workhorse models, um, you know, sort of like the FRB U.S. model that the Fed uses as an example. Th those models suggest that about a ten percent move in the broad dollar shifts core inflation by twenty basis points up or down four quarters later. So if the dollar is going up, and that's a sustained ten percent move. Then you can expect core inflation to come down 20 basis points four quarters later relative to your baseline. And if it's down 10%, then it'll go up. Core inflation, the opposite will be true of that. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a modest effect. I don't think it's a, I think it's a lot more of a focus for market participants, right? Like, so, you know, China's deflating and what does that mean? You know, I mean, it's, it means a lot more for Europe, Australia, you know, the UK, um, because those are much, um, uh, th those are somewhat uh, uh, more open economies. I mean, merchandise trade is a much bigger deal in Europe than it is here in the U.S. So obviously, we've seen quite a lot of the Chinese manufacturers um, um, starting to sort of gain footholds uh, back again in in the U.S. And you know the 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 sort of the two sort of Chinese websites that come to mind uh, are Timu and Sheen, which are you know, really producing the low end size recently. I know Sheen well. I get I get a package from Sheen every other week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. And, and and I think they're they're certainly taking a lot of the mind share. They're you know, I guess broadly deflationary selling things in apparel and, and, and some of those areas that we, where obviously Sheen is very strong in. Um, and I, I guess this concept of kind of just in time and real time manufacturing. And its impact on on um, the economy and uh, you know inflation uh, and trends in general. Have you done any work on that? Uh, is there any interest in that? Because I think uh, I recently came back from from Asia, and everyone was just talking about sort of just in time manufacturing. The Chinese have perfected AI driven models that mean that you can. You can, uh, you know, look at, uh, I guess, uh, uh, um, how much has been sold on your website, and it goes straight into how much electricity power consumption you should use for the next month. You know that kind of thing. Um, have, have you looked at, explored any of those sort of things? Are, are there any areas where you? Th I mean, these are clearly all deflationary forces. Um, uh, have you looked at any of those sort of things to kind of get a gauge of whether these things will actually have any impact at all, or does it just wash out the numbers? You know, I have, I mean, obviously there's been a secular trend towards just-in-time inventory management. Um, you know, the pandemic upended that a little bit because companies yeah. didn't source product and so they've just over-ordered. And, uh, you know, essentially what's happened, um, you know, it's been sort of one large bullwhip cycle. And so you basically had um, a huge overbuilding of inventories, uh, you know, starting sometime in late 2022, early 2023. Um, you know, and as consumers kind of shifted their preferences away from goods towards services, you had a lot of retailers kind of holding the bag for inventories that, you know, they've been cutting price on to move. You know, now you're at a point where we kind of have the opposite problem, um, it looks like. Um, so consumer spending on household goods has generally been going up in real terms. 
and uh, inventories have more or less been cutting from GDP growth during that time. Uh, so basically over the last, you know, let's say two to three quarters. So you're getting now to a point where inventories will likely play, play more of a role in boosting uh, growth because, um, you know, manufacturers are going to have to work a little bit more to, to, get, uh, to get the inventory out the door uh, because retailers need it. I mean, re, you know, consumer spending is still holding up. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I, I mean, I can't speak to just-in-time inventory management, but I can say that inventories are not where they need to be you know, ultimately inventories will have to grow in line with final demand and that's not happening at the moment. So as that begins to, you know, happen, uh, it's going to provide a cyclical click to GDP. And you're going to see that in indicators like uh, ISM, PMIs, you know, things like that. So we'll probably start to see some sort of that acceleration. I guess it's been hugely weak over the last, um, uh, well, good service side, at least anyway, we very weak over the last six, nine months. We probably start to see a bit of an uptick in the, some of that towards the end of the year, I guess. Well, you mean, in ter- yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, you mean in terms of uh, like the P- the manufacturing PMIs? Yeah, exactly. Manufacturing. So exactly. Oh, yeah. Non-manufacturing has been on a tear fairly consistently. Well, I, would, I would think so. I mean, um, you know, you have stabilization and global activity. You have inventories being depleted in the U.S. and most of the world. New orders are beginning to climb. I think importantly, business confidence has recovered. Yeah. That's a big story, right? I mean, so you know, if you because we one of the questions we get asked all the time in client meetings is, are we early cycle or mid cycle or late cycle? Um, and in some respects, it's hard to really answer that question because we've had because because the economy has kind of moved on a two track sort of basis, right? Because it was a very unusual recession and recovery. We kind of opened up different parts of the economy at different times. We shut them at different times. We shut, we opened and shut them again. I mean, it's sort of, um, but you can say that, you know, if, if we're coming out of the bullwhip, maybe we were starting to see some normalized dynamics in the economy. And, you know, in my estimation, it feels more early cycle in the sense that you have a simultaneous improvement in corporate and consumer confidence. I mean, that's not usual um, late in the cycle. It's usually something you see very early on. Uh, And so I think that kind of provides a little bit of a cyclical kick to the economy. But more importantly for companies, the fact that business confidence is recovering, uh, that should improve things like non-residential equipment spending, which has been quite sluggish. So if if companies are feeling better about the outlook, they'll tend to invest more today. And uh, that's been sort of a sore spot for the economy over the last year or so, and uh, it's likely to be more of a tailwind going forward. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think that's a, it's a very fair point. We've got a, you know, using a traditional cycle um, narrative over the last few years has been pretty disastrous. You've got it completely wrong. And so looking at desynchronous economy, now resynchronizing is actually probably a nice narrative to think about over the next 12 months or so. Um, so I think that's uh, I think that's spot on actually. Um, um, so moving then on to I have cut a couple of last uh, two two last kind of questions really. Um, the first one is around uh, the election and um, uh, you know puts and takes around the election um, in terms of its impact on the economy and and um, and the future path of rates. 
any sort of early thoughts um, on that side in terms of, you know, uh, I guess a Republican win and or a Democrat win? Well, it's a great question. I mean, um, you know, as you know, I mean, when you have the sort of uh, vote harvesting season, um, you always get the uh, you always get the uh, sort of usual uh, drumbeat out of the street about, okay, here's my Democratic basket, here's my Republican basket, go along these dogs, and I mean. And as you know, I mean, you've been in the business long enough to know that these are really mostly useless. Um, uh, good, good for people to sort of for cocktail party conversation, but not necessarily the best thing for investing. And so, you know, for me, the risk is really what happens if you get a unified government coming out of the November elections. I think that's what I'm most concerned with because if you go, um, if you go back historically, um, you know when. Uh, when Barack Obama came into office, we were talking about the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. When uh, when Donald Trump came into office, it was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. When Joe Biden came into office, again, unified government. Um, we were talking about the American Rescue Plan and sending out $1,400 checks to people after the Georgia Senate races. In other words, when you get a unified government, usually the first thing they do is spend money or cut taxes or some combination of both. It's not like Donald Trump, if he were to win, is going to come out and say, hey, guess what, everyone? I know I didn't run on consolidating your, your social security benefits, but that's what we're going to do. So um, I think that that's an interesting kind of um, a thought experiment because um, you know the economy's fine. Um, maybe inflation stabilizing by then. How willing is the bond market going to be to fund a uh, additional kind of uh, fiscal push from the government? We we are obviously there's still a lot of stuff in the pipeline based on existing law. And um, you know the it was interesting. You know one of the reasons. I mean the CBO just had their you know longer run budget projections released and. You know, if you look at debt to GDP, it actually came down a little bit more than where they had it before. And it's one of the reasons why is because of immigration. Now, I don't know whether that's legal or le- illegal. I mean, uh, I guess one optimistic way of thinking it is we have a lot of people that are just willing to pay U.S. taxes. Okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, does anyone honestly believe that that's going to continue if Donald Trump becomes president? I don't think so. I mean, it'll, the number will come down. I mean, and and that's and that's also been one of the reasons why, despite relatively healthy employment growth and economic growth, the uh, the unemployment rate hasn't really um, kept going down. It's because we we've had this sort of unprecedented increase in the foreign-born workforce, and uh, you know, a lot of that is probably delays from the visa approval process during COVID. But it's probably a one-up, one-time shift. So what happens when you have a more normalized, I mean, because most demographic-based estimates of labor force growth in the U.S. suggest break-evens around 100,000, maybe 125. So what happens when you start getting something closer to that? In other words, you don't need as much jobs growth to push the unemployment rate down. So you're talking about potentially a renewed tightening of the labor market alongside a new government coming in, deciding to dump more uh, stimulus onto the system. 
well, I mean, that's that's an interesting kind of thing to think about. I, I don't know. I mean, do you get some kind of, I mean, do you get like a UK moment here in the US? That's, I don't know. I mean, it, but it's something we're thinking about. Obviously, the bond markets can't push uh, the president out of office the way they can the prime minister over there. But uh, um, I, I do think that's interesting. It's less likely something to worry about if Biden wins because um, the Republicans have a very favorable Senate map this year. So if Biden wins, there's probably still a reasonably good chance that the Republicans can flip the Senate, even if he were to win. So you can have more of a deadlock government where it'd be more difficult to push through, um, you know, big pieces of legislation that, you know, grease the wheels of the economy. It's it's a fair point. So I think just maybe just summarize your, your points there. So obviously the economy is actually reasonably good shape, maybe gets a little bit slower, be going through the course of the year, but you know, instead rate cuts will kind of help. Um, but the key thing is we've still got quite a lot of fiscal spending in the, in the, in the works already. And then we just have another layering on of, 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 um, of fiscal spending. Um, and at a time when maybe the job market or the immigration at least becomes less, um, uh, or becomes more of a problem in terms of lack of immigration, should I say. And that just then leads to a much more tighter economy. Is that, am I reading that right in terms of, in yeah, terms I mean, of- I think that that's a reasonable thing to consider. I mean, we've been, I mean, we one of the reasons why inflation has been uh, cooling despite stronger economic growth has been because we've had uh, uh, two positive supply shocks happen simultaneously. I mean, you had basically the fading of the manufacturing supply shock um, and then you and then you had uh, the um, the the pent up uh, immigration. Um, so you know what happens if both of those things start to fade a little bit? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a very, that's a very good point. I think that's something. Certainly, I think the bond market later in the year will start to to figure out. Yeah, unlikely it will have the same impact it did in the UK, but uh, you know who knows. But certainly does mean higher risk premium, the long end of the curve, you know, as we go through the course of the year, particularly if, uh, and you're right, it, I don't think it really matters who comes in. Uh, I think they're both going to probably throw some money at this um, uh, in, into the economy. So um, moving on, and it's a, a question, obviously you work at Redmac, obviously Jeff has been very much, um, uh, you know, on the technical side, you know, one of the, um, um, I, I guess, quantum mental was pro probably, uh, also added in there uh, over the course of the last sort of five or 10 years. But in terms of how you're using Jeff's work and how does it reinforce your views, or actually sometimes you have you know, disagreement of views between, between what you're seeing on the economic data and then market reaction or subsector reactions uh, in stocks. Um, any, any sort of thoughts on that? Because uh, obviously... You know, it's a discussion I have with my macro team all the time um, in terms of what the stocks is telling us and what the, the, I guess, the economic picture is telling us. Uh, any any sort of thoughts on that in terms of, you know, how, how you're able to marry the two fine arts? <laughs> well, I mean, as you know, I mean, at Renmac, we don't make it, make it a point in terms of, um, you know, as sort of a uh, mandate, institutional mandate for us to agree. So there are going to be times where, you know, I mean, Jeff is more optimistic on the markets and maybe I'm a little bit less optimistic about the economy. 
Um, it became, I mean, it's more of a challenge, frankly, for our sales team than it is for us. We just sort of say whatever the hell we want to say and uh, let them sort it out. But, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's important for, I mean, for me, um, you know, one of the things that Jeff has always said is that price leads data, right? As you know, I mean, you're a follower of his work. And I generally agree with that. I mean, I think markets are a discounting mechanism, right? I mean, if you want to get a sense for, um, you know, people ask me like, what's the indicator you look at to, to get to gauge where the economy is going? And I, I I mean, I'll just sort of say, yeah, the equity markets. <laughs> because if you yeah. just look at the, I mean, in, in, in macro, everything is kind of correlated, right? And um, and if, if growth is, uh, is picking up, uh, you'll see that reflected in the equity markets fairly quickly. Um, uh, and so I think that's, so it's important. So I, I generally agree. Now there are times where I think uh, fundamentals may challenge the prevailing market narratives and you have to kind of pick your spots and say when that is. So, I mean, a good example would be uh, the summer of 2022. I mean, a lot of the technical indicators were kind of clicking positively. Um, things were looking good, but you know, my view was that Look, inflation is still running like 3x the Fed's target. They're not going to be happy about that. They're still going to be tightening policy aggressively and will put, be put generally be pushing back against looser financial conditions because that is not in line with their goals. And so I would generally resist the temptation to buy into into the rally at that point. So um so that so that was a good example uh where where maybe you had some differences in the technical data um versus the economic uh, outlook. Um, but right now, I think, you know, Jeff and I are, are, are more or less aligned uh, in terms of uh, the the direction of travel. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic about the economy. And in the absence of bad news, I mean, the stock markets have a bias to keep going up. So, um, and I don't, and I, and I certainly don't think the Fed is going to be fighting stock market rallies at this point. I mean, if inflation is brought under better balance, then, you know, uh, the Fed shouldn't be that concerned. I mean, you know, they'll be more likely to ease in the face of economic downturns than they otherwise would be uh, now that inflation's under more control. So yeah. that kind of um, the stock market sentiment, you could say. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so um, obviously, um, I want to kind of talk a little bit about the risks that you see to the economy out there uh, at at this point in time, are they? I mean, is there anything we should be thinking about with respect to kind of real estate? Obviously, we had um, you know the regional banks and the regional banks with New York Community Bank recently you know, um, coughing up a little bit in terms of their real estate exposures. Uh, is there anything in there that worries you, or, or are there other worries that you think are more important? Well, I think the downs, I mean, so what I, I mean, one of the things that I'm always sort of um, when people ask me about risks is that I think I'll, in many cases, I, I think this is sort of a legacy of the financial crisis period and the, you know, the years after is that we're very aware of the downside risks. Like, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, people souring on U.S. debt because uh, of deficits and, um, you know, is the reacceleration in the economy going to reignite? inflation while the Fed is cutting, prompting a abrupt U-turn, uh, you know, the banking stresses and commercial real estate and what that means for the regional banking system in the U.S. Um, 
you know, I think these downside risks are le- are, are fairly well subscribed and well under. I mean, I think people know about them. It's a fair um, point, yeah. So what gets less attention are what are the potential upside risks to the economy, right? Like, so as I mentioned, productivity. Productivity has been picking up. It, right at the moment, it's growing basically in line with its tra- uh, trend before the pandemic, which is around one and a half to two percent. Now, one of the things I find fascinating is that you know productivity is something that is notoriously difficult to forecast. Um, you know, there's only been one person that's actually gotten a productivity call right. That's Alan Greenspan. He did it in the '90s. Everyone else, you know, um, it's it's tough, and it's one of these things that's kind of revealed in the data, right? I mean, it's not something you make a call on, but you can just it's like 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 neutral rates, right? They just, you just sort of see it, and then you know that it's happening. Um, and productivity is kind of that way. So, as an example, in the periods following the financial crisis, what what was the sort of what was the consensus doing? Every year, we went into January thinking that growth would be two and a half or three percent, and then by the end of the year, it was everyone took their GDP estimates down to one and a half or two, and that literally happened basically every year from 2011 to 2017. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and you know what? The 90s were exactly the opposite. Right. So if you go back to the 90s, every year, starting in like 95, you had growth where the consensus was fairly conservative, around 2%. And by the end of the year, we were at three and a half, sometimes four. And that happened pretty much every year from 95 to 2000. That was the productivity boom. Right. Uh, You just kept, you keep getting perpetually surprised to the upside. And what's interesting in some respects is how much. What we're going through right now feels a little bit like last year, right? Last year, remember the consensus was recession, no growth, zero, negative growth. I mean, and we ended up growing two and a half percent. And if you look at the Bloomberg News or blue chip consensus over the next four quarters, there is not one quarter in the US where the consensus sees growth in excess of one and a half percent at an annual rate, which is really shocking because we're tracking like two and a half to three right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I wonder whether, um, uh, you know, we continue to see this sort of uh, immaculate productivity improvement. And if people continue to kind of discount that and not pay attention to it. And keep in mind that this is before AI. I mean, you know, one of we know that AI is not in the data. You know, that's like the solo paradox, right? I mean, if, if you're talking about it, it's not reflected in the productivity statistics. Um, so to me, that's the upside risk that people may not currently be appreciating is do you get this kind of wave of uh, you know, productivity that's that's um that's clicking for the next few years? Um and does that um you know, I mean, does that kind of keep uh, inflation under control? Um but it would also obviously mean higher real real rates. Um but you know, I mean that would be sort of a potentially euphoric situation for equity markets. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, yeah, I think we're so used to to always talking about the negative risk, but hardly ever the the upside risk. So it's not as fashionable, of course, to talk about upside risk. Well, as, as you know, I mean, um, being a sort of, uh, I'm always pigeonholed as sort of a permable, um, even <laughs> though I think that that's, you know, generally, it makes sense to be optimistic about the economy on average, but uh, you know, and it's it's one of these things where um, you know the uh, the optimistic case always sounds dumber. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
But in the bearish case, always sounds smarter. But the optimistic case is usually the right one. And and, and uh, no. no, it's always yeah. I mean, we always joke uh, here internally is that the the pessimists always sound so much more smarter than the uh, the optimists. But uh, yeah. you know, it, it just it is. I, I guess it needs uh, a, you know, just you know, smart professors always go negative. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, uh, Neil. Listen, um, thanks very much for. Uh, for updating on your on your thoughts, I think there's a there's a lot to to chew chew over and to think about um, uh, in terms of you know, your inputs that you gave in today. So I think that's uh, you know highly appreciated. Um, carry on the great work. I think um, uh, it's uh, as you know, and I know a lot of my colleagues are are fans of of Ramak listening. You know, every week in, into the works, and I don't know you've you've got. Uh, uh, a very excitable Twitter handle and LinkedIn profile. So uh, we'll certainly uh, keep a keep a watch out for there. And obviously, uh, everyone listening is a podcast. You know, certainly do uh, follow uh, follow Redmax. So uh, Neil, with that, thank you very much, and, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, most appreciate it. Hope to see you in London soon. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Uh, so that wraps us up for uh, today. Uh, thank you for listening in to Beyond the Benchmark. And if you have any questions, please reach out uh, to us or to your client representative. Uh, Thank you very much and have a great day.